Hello everyone. Thank you for tuning in to these short devotional videos that we're hoping to put together as often as we can. Obviously these videos uh, are not meant to replicate or replace what we experience and have together on a Sunday morning, but we do want to provide as much as we can for you guys during this time of isolation and uncertainty. In a few moments, Sam is going to pray, and after that, Steve will be giving us some reflections on Revelation chapter 4. But before both of those things happen, I want to read Revelation chapter 4 for you. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them and read along with me, or you can just listen. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory, Honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Creswick, we'd like to uh, pray with you part of our service today. So perhaps you can just bow your head and we'll pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity we have of gathering together, rather remotely, but together. Thank you, Father, for each person who, has wa who is watching and uh, we would ask that you would be with us during this time. Thank you, Father, that you remind us constantly that the church is not simply the building, but that the church are the people of God, whether they are gathered together or scattered, even as we are now. We are thankful, Father, that we can have fellowship together, a fellowship that uh, knows no bound. We recognize that there are people around the world who are also uh, in the same situation that we are and are gathering together as they are able. And we are thankful, Father, for the fellowship that we can have. Fellowship, Father, because of who you are and what you have done. We'd ask, Father, that you would, uh, as your people, 
would um, uh, deliver us from a sense of uh, covetous in uh, wanting to have everything that we believe we need, but on the other hand, to be uh, care uh, so that we are distracted in terms of what's taking place. Uh, Father, we would ask that you would um, enable us uh, to be people of faith. Uh, help us, Father, to be uh, a people who are not selective in their faith. We are thankful, Father, that you uh, have given to us the greatest gift of all, the faith that we have, and the faith that we have in salvation in Christ. Help us to uh, be not selective in terms of the great thing that we have, but of, uh, of exercising our faith in the ordinary, everyday, everyday incident, incident, incidents of life. So, Father, we, we do pray for those um, in our group who are uh, feeling isolated. We would ask that they may know the fellowship of people. Help us, Father, as a church to step out and to, uh, to enable others to serve um, the Lord Jesus even as, um, as he did uh, in, our own in our own lives. We do thank you today, Father, for our mayor, for the premier, premier and the prime minister for their leadership for the um, uh, caregivers, the doctors and nurses and technicians and uh, those who are able to uh, serve and care. We would ask that you would give them a strength, the strength that they need. Help us, Father, as a church to be servants of yours in this time. We do thank you for this time. We ask that your blessing would be upon us. And in the strong name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, when you're when you're watching this, I, I don't know quite where you're going to be. Uh, normally on a Sunday morning, I can look out and I can see you and know that you're here. And uh, one of the reasons, to be honest, that I've resisted doing some kind of live stream uh, on a Sunday morning uh, into an empty in an empty room in the empty auditorium is that. There simply is no way of preaching um, apart from having a congregation. There's a dynamic with the Holy Spirit and with the opening of the Word of God and with who's ever speaking, but also with whoever is there and present. So what I'm doing this morning is not, uh, it's not a mock sermon. It's not pseudo preaching. Uh, I'm not pretending there is a congregation here. I'm just going to try to share a few things from Revelation chapter 4 that Jake read uh, earlier. And wherever you are, whether you're uh, by yourself or with uh, your family or with a small group of people, uh, I trust that the Holy Spirit will take this word, uh, take this text of scripture, and uh, apply it to your life and to your heart. And even as I speak, I hope that the Lord opens my eyes and teaches me some things here as well. We all know that when John writes Revelation, uh, it's, an, it's an, a vision that he receives, and in, as common with apocalyptic literature, uh, the vision is mediated by an angel. And, and we know that John, when he has this sort of mediated vision, uh, he's not in his home. Uh, he's not anywhere comfortable. 
he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And in a very interesting way, uh, you might even be able to set up uh, a, a little bit of a parallel with a quarantine situation. Uh, he's isolated, not entirely. Uh, there is a population of other people there as well, but he's cut off from his, all of his friends and all of his family. Uh, he's removed and unable to gather together with the people of God. At this point in his life, likely, if uh, we have our tradition right about when Revelation was written, uh, he may be the last apostle of Jesus Christ who's alive. Uh, and the, when we read Revelation 2 and 3, one of the things that we discover is that through uh, that the Lord Jesus instructs John to write to seven different churches. And so John is well aware of churches in different cities. He's, he's well aware of the needs of Christians in all kinds of congregations. He's used to having fellowship with other believers. And now he finds in an analogous way to us today that he's just simply not able to gather together with the people of God the way that he would like to be able to do. And so this vision in chapter 4 comes to him when he's alone, when he's isolated. And to be very honest, I think some of the comfort given in this book of Revelation, which is a book with fantastic uh, passages of comfort and peace and joy and hope uh, in Jesus Christ and in his conquering uh, life and power and his atonement, which actually defeats sin and the devil and the beasts and all the other things that we see in this book. There's a lot of hope given, uh, and that hope is given to someone who really needs some good news. Right now, in John's time in the ancient world, again, he's the last of the apostles. All of the others have been martyred for their faith. The church is experiencing persecution. He's in exile all by himself. And one of the great questions is, if Jesus is the King of Kings, where is the victory? Uh, if Jesus is the King of Kings, why does everything seem to be going so badly for the church? Yes, the church has had phenomenal growth, and there's churches in all kinds of different cities. But if you read Revelation 2 and 3, you find that all these churches, well, except for a couple, are struggling really badly. It seems like the powers of the world are winning. It seems like the dragon and the beasts are conquering. So where can you find hope when you're exiled in a world that is full of chaos? Well, thankfully, what John discovers through the Holy Spirit is that even if you're all by yourself, you're never forsaken by God. Even when you can't gather together with the family of believers the way you would like to, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. As he says at the end of Matthew's Gospel, it's surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And here's John in a very discouraging situation, and yet God is with him. The Holy Spirit comes to him, and John says in chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet, that's a reference to the voice of Jesus uh, in Revelation chapter 1. So it's Jesus speaking to him. says, come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. The word must uh, in the words of Jesus in verse 1 there uh, is a word that's often used of divine necessity. And, and this is something very important for John to know. And Jesus says, I will show you what must take place after this. He's being reminded, listen, 
as much as there's a lot to be discouraged about, as much as there's a lot that's frightening and scary and uncertain and chaotic in the world, God has a plan. There are things that must take place. There are things that will take place. No matter what our government's responses to things are, no matter what the social media response to things are, God has a plan. Nothing is going to derail his plan. Not Satan, not illness, not pestilence, not pandemics. Nothing is going to derail the plan of God because Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And even if you're in exile, even if you're isolated, the Spirit of God is with you. God is with you. Christ is with you. And he is the one who is in control. I will show you what must take place after this. God is never worried. He's never caught off guard. Uh, he's never going to be outmaneuvered or taken by surprise. There are still things that must take place. Then we're told in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And this, I think, is highly instructive. John, in this isolated, lonely situation where it seems that the secular powers are winning in their persecution of the church, John is granted by the Spirit uh, a vision of heaven, and the very first thing he sees is a throne. I looked, there's an open door, I looked, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Someone sitting on it is a circumlocution, of course, for God, uh, not referencing God directly, but the idea is there. The very first thing you see in heaven, if you're granted an understanding of what heaven is like, the first thing you see is a throne with God himself sitting on it and God himself reigning over all things. The idea there, of course, is that God is in sovereign control of the universe. The throne is a symbol of authority and power. And so whatever's going on in the world, the first thing you want to know about heaven is that God is in absolute sovereign control of everything that is taking place. And we will remind ourselves as well, that the one who is sitting on the throne, as much as he is a great and transcendent king, uh, his throne isn't just in you know, Jerusalem or, or Rome or somewhere like that. His throne is in heaven itself, transcendent above everything else. The one who sits on the throne is also our Father. He's the one we pray to, our Father in heaven. And in heaven, he is not helpless or filled with anxiety. Our Father, who's omnipotent, is in heaven sitting on his throne sovereignly ruling over all things because there are certain things he has planned that must and will be accomplished. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, so precious stones, precious gems. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now, of course, uh, the rainbow is a symbol uh, of the covenant with Noah. And in fact, in Hebrew, uh, it doesn't say that it's a, a rainbow, it just says that it's a bow. God hangs his bow up in the sky. Uh, the idea there actually is of uh, someone who goes to war, takes their bow and arrows and, and goes into war. They fight, they battle, and when they come back to their home, they take that bow and, and they hang it up on the wall. It's a sign that peace has been returned, peace has been restored. And so when you hang up a bow, you don't hang it by the strings. Uh, you hang it by the, the curved part of the bow. And so you take that bow, you, you hang it up on the wall, it has the shape of a rainbow. The rainbow is symbolic of God ceasing his war against the sinful world. God is 
made a covenant of peace. And so in heaven, the one who sits on the throne blazes like precious gems, and what encircles him is this rainbow that's shining like an emerald. It's a full circle showing the completion, the perfection of the peace that God has established. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, uh, right before this COVID pandemic uh, started to affect us so much in terms of what we're able to do and how we can meet here in this part of the world, I had done uh, one Sunday school class on uh, hermeneutics and revelation. And I'm convinced that revelation is actually, as much as there's a lot in it that we can't understand, uh, the symbolism in revelation is understandable if you keep the big picture in mind, don't get stuck on every little detail, but also just stop and think about what these things represent. And I think Revelation 4 and 5, these two chapters, these two chapters are actually really one vision, although we're only looking at chapter 4 together uh, today. Uh, chapter 4 and 5 really teaches you how to read the book. There's, if, if you just slow down and pay attention to the symbolism in these chapters, you can start to understand, oh, th this book isn't just, a, it's not just mystery, it's not black magic. Uh, it, it's not esoteric. It's actually perfectly comprehensible. So you have this one throne with a full rainbow around it. Then in concentric circles moving out from this throne, there are 24 other thrones, uh, 12 times 2, probably symbolic of you know, the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, that is the composite people of God together. 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 Elder. So you have the central throne, this encircling rainbow, then all of these 24 other thrones. What you're learning is something very important for us to understand uh, at this time in history. There are other thrones in the universe. There are other powers. In fact, in Revelation, uh, in this book, you are told that there are places where Satan has his throne. So there are rulers. There are authorities that we are submitting to, even in terms of not meeting together today, because our public health officials and our governments have issued certain restrictions and recommendations, and we are following them uh, because we are applying Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, these passages that tell us to obey and respect and to submit to the governing authorities of the land. There are legitimate authorities, but... This text symbolically shows us that at the center of the universe, there is only one throne, and that's the throne of God. Every other power and authority that there is, that authority is derivative. That is, that authority is not intrinsic. That authority is granted by royal decree from God himself. Only God can establish um, sub-authorities under himself, even in heaven even with these mighty beings. So today, whatever our governments do around the world, whatever our, our municipal governments, and regional authorities, and, and provincial and uh, federal, whatever these governments and authorities do, we remember, yes, they have legitimate spheres of authority, but all of that authority is ultimately under God himself. He is the only one on the central throne. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And now, now white, of course, is a color of purity. And so these are pure beings, and crowns of gold, that is authority, might, kingly. 
And so what you have is purity and royalty coming together. So it's just a, a, the, the symbolism is very clear at this point. These are mighty, powerful beings in heaven itself. Their authority comes from God. They're pure and holy and royal and have authority. From the throne, so now you focus back on the throne. From this central throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Uh, that, of course, is a Sinai motif. That's what you have in the Theophany at Sinai when God appears and no one can even touch the mountain or they die. So now the vision is remind, is kind of showing you, listen, this is the throne room of a holy God. And using that Old Testament Sinai imagery, the image is one of fear and danger. Fire and smoke and mountain. That's the image you're supposed to have in your mind. Lightning, peals of thunder, rumblings. In front of the throne... Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And that is probably to be understood in terms of seven as a number of perfection. This is the, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. So cast in, this, in the vision, in apocalyptic symbolism, as being sevenfold. That is, he is full and complete, the perfect spirit of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now this glass that's clear as crystal would have been impossible to have in the ancient world where glass was very opaque. It's only been, been a few centuries that we've been able, to, been able to really refine glass well. Um, and to have glass as clear as crystal would speak of its purity, but also with all this lightning and, and flashes of lightning, uh, the emerald, the, the appearance of the one like jasper and ruby, the rainbow, this, this sea of glass clear as crystal is, is reflecting or refracting light all over the place. Uh, it's blinding in its glory and in its splendor. The sea also, though, to the Israelites was an obstacle. They weren't really a seafaring people. And so there could be a sense in which uh, the sea is also supposed to be a, almost like a moat, something that guards you and keeps you out of the presence of God. Uh, this is why the beast in the book, the first beast, comes out of the sea. He comes out of the place of chaos and the uh, abode of demons. Also, at the end of the book, you're told that in heaven there is no more sea. It doesn't mean that there aren't lakes or oceans or rivers or water, but the sea as a place of chaos and, and the, uh, as the abode of demons is removed forever. And that's in front of the throne. But then in the center around the throne, this is another little concentric circle. Uh, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Even today we'll talk about having eyes in the back of your head. It means they can see everything. Their eyes are all over their body. There's nowhere in all of this throne room where they can't see. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Now what you have here in these two verses... If you read Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah 6, what you'll find is that these uh, four living creatures are depicted as composite beings of the cherubim and the seraphim. So the seraphim in Isaiah 6 are the flashing ones with their, you know, their wings and all of the rest. The, the cherubim in Ezekiel 1 are, also have uh, sort of elements of the, the depiction here in Revelation. Interesting enough, in Ezekiel, the beings each have a, a four-sided head. And so each of them have you know, a lion, ox, eagle, and human face. 
Here, the four living creatures, it's sort of one face per being. One is a lion, one is an ox, one is an eagle, one is a human being. And if you just stop and think that clearly uh, this is symbolism drawn, drawn from earthly domains and earthly kingdoms. So the lion is the king of the beasts. The lion is the most fearsome of the wild animals. The ox is by far the strongest of the domestic animals. Uh, the eagle is the bird that rules the sky. And human beings are overall and given stewardship and the task of dominion and given wisdom. So what you're being told is basically every single power that you can associate in strength domains here on Earth, these beings have. They're the epitome of these be uh, of all of these sort of categories of strength and power and authority and all of the rest. And they see everything. Now, if you stop and ask yourself, what was the response of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he sees the seraphim and the glory of God? And it's that he thought he was going to die. The job of the cherubim is to guard the holiness of God and to slay intruders. So when Adam and Eve are removed from Eden, it's a cherubim who has a flashing, a flaming sword guarding the way back in so they can't eat from the tree of life. It's the cherubim which stand in the holy of holies that are engraved on the mercy seat to slay those who go in, apart from the high priest, once a year. Uh, the temple, uh, the cherubim are engraved into the doors that separate the most holy place from the holy place. And the cherubim are the guardians of God's holiness. You come into his presence and they slay you. So the fact that these guardians will slay anyone who comes into the presence of God and they have eyes all around means you can't sneak past them. In a sense, the vision of heaven here is not inviting at all. The Sinai imagery was, if you come near the mountain, you will die. The seraphim imagery from Isaiah 6 is, if you see this, you will cry out, woe to me, I am undone. The cherubim imagery is one of perpetual reminder that to trespass on the holiness of God brings death. The sea in front of the throne is another obstacle. This is in a sense like having, you know, pit bulls and, and rottweilers and machine gun nests and barbed wire everywhere and electric fencing. You cannot get near the one who sits on the throne. It's this sort of reading of the text which, has a, which sets up the glory of the next chapter when Jesus Christ comes to the throne and begins to bring all of God's purposes to pass because he has redeemed his people. You find out in chapter 5, really, that it's only because there's a redeemer that John can come into the presence of God in the first place. So what are these beings doing? It says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Just like Isaiah 6, they've never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy. He is set apart. He is transcendent. He is in a category literally all by himself. He's the property of aseity. He exists from himself. He's omnipotent. He's morally pure. He has every perfection that there is. There is no one like God. He is the creator. Everything else has, has its existence because of him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's strong. Who was and is and is to come. He's eternal. He's everlasting. And although we don't know what's going on, frankly, um, from one day to the next anymore, we don't know what a day will bring forth. We don't know what a week will bring forth. We don't know what the news will be over the next few months. God's already existed. 
was and is and is to come. He has the whole thing mapped out. He, he knows our tomorrows before they will be. And the one who knows the future is the one who sits on the throne, worshipped by these beings. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. That is, they're, they're, they're demonstrating our authority comes from you. Every gift we have is from you. You are the real king. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So the idea here, of course, is that God is worthy to receive all of our praise. And, and when they offer him glory and honor and power, they're not enriching him, because he, he's already maximally glorious and powerful. But they're ascribing to him the glory and honor that is his due. And then they praise him not just for who he is, but for what he has done. They praise him because he's the creator. You created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. The only reason this universe exists is because God made it. The only reason this universe exists is because God is the one who sustains it. And so at this time, frankly, it's a necessary reminder for us and a necessary witness and message for us to have in the world today that God is on the throne. God is in control. There are things that must take place, but our God is eternal. He knows the end from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning. And the only reason, frankly, that we exist, the only reason that you're listening to this, if you still are, and I'm assuming none of you just skipped forward uh, throughout this process, you know, the reality is the only reason that you're alive and able to understand what I'm saying is because God is willing your existence at this moment. And there's going to come a day, whether it's through this pandemic or through something else, there's going to come a day for every one of us when we die. And if you go on and you read Revelation 5, you find out that actually death, as much as we, we don't go courting it, when death comes, we find out that through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, death's already been defeated. Death has already died through Jesus. Death yields to victory for those who die in the Lord. And so we realize that the Lord has numbered our days to the exact moment of when he will call us into his presence. There are things that must take place, things that we must do, but when God has determined to call us into his presence, the summons is unavoidable. And it will come for all of us at some point. The hope of the believer is not that somehow God will protect them forever so that they'll never die. The hope for the believer is that Jesus Christ has conquered death and that in union with him, even though we die, yet we will live because we will live eternally through his redemptive blood that he shed for us and which he is praised for in Revelation 5 verse 9. You should go on and read Revelation 5. It's a beautiful chapter, and, and pay attention to, to the despair that John has that no one can accomplish the purposes of God. Who can get past all these obstacles to a holy God? Who could ever do this? No one in heaven and on earth can do it, except for the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb 
who looks as though he's been slain. And then notice how Christ brings to pass God's purposes. And then notice how all of creation in increasingly large concentric circles, how all of God's creation begins to praise him and the Lamb. Because God exists and is worthy of praise for his intrinsic character, verse 8. He's worthy of praise for his work of creation, verse 11. But climactically, he's worthy of praise because of the redemption he has provided for us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Revelation 4 and 5 are amongst my favorite chapters uh, in the Bible. And I hope today uh, that the message that John recorded for us uh, nearly 2,000 years ago is one that we can draw strength from and hope from as we continue to worship our God together. We really don't know uh, here at the church what's going to happen over the next little while. We appreciate your care and your concern and your understanding. Uh, we're going to do our best uh, together as a church family to figure out what it means to worship God and to strengthen one another when we can't just meet the way we're used to meeting. So it's a time of change. My prayer really is honestly not that we just won't go backwards and not that we'll just maintain the status quo. My prayer is that in these times where we have to do things differently, that we'll actually come to appreciate things we took for granted and that we'll actually grow and stretch spiritually. This is a time to go forward, not a time to hold back. Let me just pray. Uh, and then you can do what you do in terms of what this technology requires. Father, you are the one who is on the throne. You are holy, holy, holy. And yet we have access to you through what Jesus Christ has done. You know our circumstances. You know what's going on in this world. You know what the future brings or what the future must carry with it. Father, help us to trust you. We thank you so much that you as our Heavenly Father are in sovereign control on the throne of the universe. Guide our lives guide the world, and help us to be drawing closer to you than ever before. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May, may the Lord be with you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord give you every blessing in Jesus Christ. And may the Lord keep you healthy and safe.